the gospel reading today is um, from John 1, 14 through 18, which can be found on page 1053 in the Pew Bibles. And this is also our sermon text for today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Chris Jameson. I've been asked to preach today on John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. This is a bittersweet sermon for me. It's bitter because this will be my, my last sermon here at Grace and Peace. Uh, not our last Sunday, but my last time to preach here. Uh, before my family and I move uh, out of St. Louis at the end of August. We're going to be heading to the UK to study scripture. Um, but this sermon is also sweet for me. Because I truly love John's gospel, and that's why I've decided to study it. But this will not be my last sermon ever, far from it. Um, I'll return here to pastor in America, wherever God leads us. Um, I hope to use the skills that God has instilled in me and continues to instill in me to serve his church with my whole life. So while this is bittersweet, I thank you, each of you, for the sweetness that you've shown to me and to my family while we've been here. It's been a great pleasure to serve God among you. stuff. We've got the words of God in front of us. Let's find the grace and truth that he lays here before us. Let's pray. Father God, reveal your glory to us this morning. Dwell with us. We are ready to receive. Amen. So this morning, we look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and we'll see some themes that Pastor Mike has already mentioned, and that should come as no surprise. <clears throat> the first 18 verses of John, or the prologue, as it's called, the introduction, it really coalesces into one story, and that is the story of the Son, the Word, this Jesus. And this is the name that the Apostle John, the author, wants us to believe in. He's, he's desperate for us to believe in this Jesus. And the reason he's so desperate is because he has seen the glory of the Lord firsthand with his own eyes. And he can't stop talking about him. This reminds me of my son, Titus. 
We all know that a preacher's children are the fount from which all illustrations flow. Well, if you've ever met my son, Titus, he, uh, there's one thing that he believes that you must know. And that is which superhero he is currently pretending to be and what their powers are. He must tell you these things. They burn in his heart. They electrify his soul. And he cannot help but burst out and extol the wonders of his current favorite character. He skips introductions. He skips greetings. He has no time to inquire how you are doing. You simply must get to the good part. You simply must know that he is Thor, and Thor has a hammer, and he, it can shoot lightning. Or that he is Mace Windu, the coolest Jedi that ever was. As you can tell, I have clearly trained my son in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will still be awesome. This is kind of like what John is doing. He, he skips introducing himself. He has no time to greet you or exchange pleasantries. It is simply far too important that you hear about this word who is God and created all things and has life and light and grace and truth within himself. There's never been one like this Jesus, and there never will be again. And so we are immediately immersed into John's story of who this Jesus is and the surpassing glory that he possesses. Except we know that John isn't just telling stories. He says he's seen these things with his own eyes, and he reports them back to us. As an aside, if you have any uh, doubts about the reliability of, of John's gospel, the historical evidence that is there, um, there is an incredible amount of corroborating evidence available, and I'd love to, to go through that with you if, you, um, if you're interested, perhaps after the service. But for now, let's take John at his word. Let's jump into the text, verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1, and we'll see the ways in which John describes Jesus as truly glorious. So as we make our way through the text, you're going to hear three things, and these three things will be our three sermon points. You'll hear about the rank, revelation, and reception of Jesus. The rank, the revelation, and the reception of Jesus. You'll hear how Jesus is ranked, who he reveals, and why he is received. Now these three things tell us who Jesus really is. And even if you've been a Christian for a really long time, I'm willing to bet that you may hear something new about who Jesus is this morning and about your belief in him. By the end of our time, you'll see that because of who Jesus Christ really is, we must always believe in his name. So, our first point, how Jesus is ranked. It sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Look with me in verse 15. The author tells, uh, the author John, he, he tells us a bit about what John the baptizer said about Jesus. He says, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. So here's how we get our first point about Jesus' rank. See, I have a verse. Now, John the Baptizer was, uh, he was Jesus' older cousin. And uh, not only was he older, he was, he was significantly older. And by the time that Jesus had come around, John was already this famous preacher, this dynamic teacher. And he had a following by the time Jesus arrives. In the ancient world, the older teacher is always considered greater. That's why the baptizer um, later quotes Isaiah, for example, who outranks him. 
And of course, uh, Moses would outrank Isaiah, partly because he came around before Isaiah. And of course, Abraham would outrank Moses, because Abraham was around before Moses, and so on and so on and so on. So, John the Baptizer says, he outranks me. And this is no surprise, because the author wants us to see who Jesus truly is. The one and only. Who else does Jesus outrank? Well, John elevates Jesus above Moses in our passage here today. Uh, he says that through Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace and truth. Verse 17. But the author doesn't stop there. Uh, he goes further in elevating Jesus above Moses by saying in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. This is a direct supersession of Moses. You'll remember in Exodus 33, we just read this morning, uh, that Moses wasn't allowed to actually see God in his fullness. God had to take precautions to make sure that his glory didn't physically kill Moses. Moses had to be placed in the cleft of the rock, first of all, right? Uh, and, and on top of that, God had to put his hand over top of Moses to protect him. But even beyond that, God could only show Moses his back briefly as he rushed by. But John says, this Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, Jesus outranks Moses in a few ways here, but, but more than that, remember John said earlier that this word made flesh actually outranks anything and everything in all of creation. Doesn't matter if it's Abraham. Doesn't matter if it's Moses or John the Baptist or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or the emperor, your job or you. Jesus outranks everyone and everything. This is the author's message for us. This is what he wants to take home. It makes me think of a story. A friend of mine who's also pursuing a PhD has a, a supervisor, a professor, that lives in London. Uh, however, she's more than just a professor because she also happens to work at a church called St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Now, St. Paul's is no ordinary church. It's actually the largest church in all of London. But that's not even the most interesting thing about it. In fact, the Queen of England attends this church often and can be seen just visiting from time to time as well. It's one thing to, to land a job at a church, even a really big church, but it's quite another thing to work where you will actually have frequent drop-ins by the Queen of England. Can you imagine just, you know, working away at your desk and all of a sudden someone with such authority who commands such respect as the Queen just stops by to say hello? You see, we're very aware of rank in our lives in that way, and there's a certain awe that comes with having someone such as the queen or some other person with tremendous standing in such, such close uh, personal proximity with you. But this is exactly what's happening in John's gospel. The God of the universe, the king of heaven itself, the one who created all things, who was in the beginning with the Father, the one who outranks everyone and everything, and who alone is worthy of worship, this one has come to dwell with you. And please know, it's not because of anything attractive in you, because a few verses ago John made that clear that it had nothing to do with how hard we've worked or our pedigree or anything that we've done, really. 
And just as you might be humbled by a visit from the Queen of England or some other impressive figure because of the widespread, def or widespread deference that's paid to them, we ought to be humbled by the fact that the God of the universe took on the frailness of human flesh in order to be close to us. Maybe you've lost that humility, that awe. This morning as we read a text from John's Gospel that you've probably heard a thousand times, particularly at Christmas, maybe you've lost your awe for Christ's arrival in human flesh for the sake of your sin. Maybe you've turned his arrival into a theological point, a factoid. Maybe you've become distracted from the absolutely astounding fact that the King of Heaven descended, rolled up his sleeves to clean up your mess. He took on weakness and pain and scorn to save you from those same things. John here is calling you to a fresh belief in his name. A belief which stands always in awe of the tremendous lengths that our great God has gone to in this cosmic rescue plan to redeem you and make you a child of his own and set his affection on you. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe you're listening today and you, and you don't believe. Or maybe you're struggling with belief in Christ. For you, John's message is pleading this morning. Don't be like those who didn't receive him. Don't you understand that, that life and light, truth and grace are found only here? Maybe you, maybe you haven't been noticing a lot of light in your life lately. But John is telling us right here that the true light has been made available to you today. Don't reject such a great salvation. Jesus, the God who upholds all creation by the word of his power, he's speaking words to you today. So as we come to our second point, let's remember where we've been. We've, we've said that in uh, John 1, 14 through 18, Jesus is ranked, revealed, and received, right? And we've just seen how Jesus was ranked the first of all creation, the one and only and now we'll see the reveal of Jesus. Look with me, uh, really, just at the, the first 18 verses in total here of John. You'll notice that John never once, not until the very end, even mentions Jesus' name. Isn't that a little odd? He calls him the Word. He calls him God. He calls him the Only Begotten or the Son. He calls him all these titles, and by the time you get down to the end, down at verse 17... You as the reader are starting to wonder, just who is this guy? Just tell us. Get it over with. It's almost as if John is sort of giving a drum roll to introducing this, this Jesus Christ, the Word. This is how you successfully execute a name drop, if you're wondering. And remember, this name is pretty important to John, right? Because he says that life and light are found only in his name. Even the right to be treated as God's children is given to, to who? Well, to those who believe in his name. This is a really important name. There's a lot riding on the name of Jesus Christ. And whether you receive him 
which means believing in his name. So the first 17 verses, they, they steadily reveal the identity of, of the Word, this God-made flesh, the one who was promised to come. And now what's interesting about John is that, as we've seen, he's, he's so concerned to show this, this glory of the Lord. He uses a lot of magnanimous terms. But what's interesting is that John is the only gospel to actually exclude uh, what's called the transfiguration narrative. All the other gospels have this, John doesn't. Now, I'm no expert, but I would think if you're trying to reveal the glory of the Lord, that would be a really good story to have in your gospel. But several scholars have said that John's entire gospel can be viewed as one big transfiguration narrative and he is constantly revealing the glory of the Lord. And right here in verse 14, we see a reference to that. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? Well, this word dwell is the same word that Peter uses on the Mount of Transfiguration when he asks if he can build uh, tents, which is a dwelling uh, for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Uh, Thurman actually several weeks ago preached about this. It's also the same word in the Greek Old Testament for tabernacle, uh, which was a tent where God dwelt with his people. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a cloud that hovered over the tabernacle, which represented the Lord dwelling with his people. It was a cloud. As a matter of fact, this is sometimes referred to as the Shekinah glory. That's not technically a biblical term, but that's the term we use when we see the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory. Well, there's a reason that we use that word, and that's because this word for dwell and for tabernacle, it's skena. So it's just like that word shekinah. That's where we get it from. And we see that word uh, in the, in the uh, Greek Old Testament in Exodus 29, 45, for example, when they're speaking about the tabernacle. So this, this shekinah glory of the Lord was evident wherever his presence, his cloud, was, Right? His cloud was also there on Mount Sinai, if you remember. We just read that this morning. His cloud was there with the Israelites, a pillar of cloud in the day and then a pillar of fire at night to guide his people in the way that they should go. It even says, and the Lord went before his people in a pillar of cloud. So the Lord has always been dwelling with his people, maybe at least in this, this cloud form. But John is saying, this is the glory we've seen with our own eyes, that we are eyewitnesses of this Shekinah, this Shekinah, the glory of the Lord which dwells with his people. And that which was hidden in clouds before is finally here, made flesh right in front of our eyes. And far from a new God, Jesus is the same God that his people have followed for all time. John even goes an extra step in verse 18 to show this. He says it explicitly, No one has ever seen God, but this God, the only Son, He is the one who has revealed God to us. He's made Him known. We see this in Colossians 2.9 as well. In Christ the fullness of God dwelt in His body. Now, if you remember, Pastor Mike has said that John's introduction here kind of plays out a little bit like the Genesis story, right? It says, in the beginning, that's our first words, and then it proceeds by telling us a, a creation story, how the Word created all things. 
This is why John kind of takes his time before mentioning Jesus' name. It's a poetic parallel of the long time that it took for Old Testament history to play out and for God to finally be revealed to us in human flesh. In fact, when Jesus comes as the Word made flesh, this is the first time that anyone has ever seen God face to face since the Garden of Eden. You remember God used to walk with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. We haven't seen him since then, until now. Maybe you haven't thought of that before, but, but that's how long humanity had to wait after the garden in order to finally see God face to face once more. Have you ever had to wait a really long time for anything? Maybe something that you really, really needed to happen? I've had uh, many experiences of waiting myself, uh, but my first experience I remember vividly uh, of waiting was actually here in St. Louis. Um, I, I'm not from St. Louis, but when I was a child, um, a friend of mine was coming down to Six Flags and he invited me to come along with his family. Now, waiting in lines on roller coasters is certainly uh, not fun, but for me in particular, uh, that day the waiting was far more intense than that. I was, I was waiting for my friend and his family as they went on this roller coaster, and I really had to go to the bathroom. And I couldn't go on this young little kid, and I had to wait until they could bring me. And so as I stood there and I started doing that little dance that kids do, eventually I just ran away and had to go find a bathroom. And, that, of course, led uh, to my first experience of being lost at a theme park as well. It's a story for another time, perhaps. But we all have experiences of waiting, right? Desperate waiting. Often we're waiting desperately for something much more consequential than simply finding a bathroom. Some of you know uh, Alyssa and I were selling our house uh, in Illinois, um, and the closing had been delayed again and again and again over the course of a whole month, and we were afraid that it wouldn't even go through. We've also been waiting on this visa process as we um, apply, and it takes forever for decisions. We're still waiting on that. Waiting is hard. It's stress-inducing. It can even seem like your entire life hangs in the balance as you wait. And this is the sort of issue that John addresses here in the introduction to his gospel. Humanity has been waiting so long for God to reveal himself, to make the world right again, to get rid of sickness, sin, and death. And John, as he writes his introduction, is shouting, He's here! The one we've been waiting for, God come in the flesh. He has finally come. He's been revealed to us. No more waiting. But if Jesus, the one who is light and life and the only source of grace and truth, if he really has come, then why do we still wait? More specifically, why do we still wait on other things, lesser things? As if when we finally receive them, we might finally have peace and relief. I can't wait until my house sells, then I would be okay. I simply can't wait for that job offer to come through, then I would finally be able to rest. If I wait a little longer, I can make it to retirement, and then I could have a little bit of peace. We're all waiting on a lot of different things, and there's nothing wrong with desiring those things. But John's message for us is that our true hope has already been revealed to us. 
He has come. He is here. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper every week, that Jesus did indeed come in flesh, as the bread signifies. And just as you place that bread in your mouth, you affirm that he dwells with you today, that he is your hope, and that even if those things that you're waiting for never materialize, you have been given all that you need in the person of Christ. Believe in his name. Do not settle for placing your hope in lesser pursuits, for no less than eternal life as a child of the Almighty God is set before you in Jesus. All else pales in comparison to that, and therefore we have to believe in his name. So we've heard uh, two things so far this morning. We've heard how Jesus is ranked, how literally awe-inspiring his arrival in the flesh really is. Uh, and we've just finished speaking about how Jesus is revealed. Jesus really is that same God who has always been taking care of, dwelling with his people. And that now that he's revealed, we may have the fullest confidence as his children with whom he is pleased to dwell. Our final point is about why Jesus is received. Look with me in verse 14 and verses 16 through 17 as well, as we have some repeated terms here. It says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So Jesus has this unique fullness to him, and it is specifically a fullness of grace and truth. Now, usually when you say somebody's full of something, you're typically indicating that they're not being very truthful, right? Well, here John is, is using a very poetic way of describing Jesus. He's telling us that Jesus is utterly full of both truth and grace. And the author even goes so far as to say in verse 16, Look, we have received this grace. We who have seen his glory have received an overabundant grace. Uh, supply of grace. So John says we're not just asserting something here. We're not just telling tales. He's actually saying we actually have proof. We've experienced this. So I'd like to talk about what it means to, to receive grace and truth today. But first, let's, let's look at what exactly grace and truth even mean. First, we'll look at the term grace. <clears throat> now, it might surprise you, but uh, <clears throat> these are actually the only verses in all of John's gospel where he ever uses the word grace. Just these verses right here. Now, to me, I think the reason that John does this uh, is because he is assuming that his readers are familiar with the term grace. And while it's important, it's not the main thrust of John's project here as he writes his gospel. <clears throat> John's gospel is one of the last books of the Bible ever to be written. In fact, all five books of the Bible that John writes are the last five books of the Bible that are written. So that means that all the other books in the New Testament which talk about grace had already been written before John writes his gospel. Now in verse 17, John, John mentions both law and grace, uh, and I think that's no coincidence because he's painting grace as a solution to the problem of the law. 
John never mentions the word sin in particular, but he, he does use all these terms earlier in, in uh, chapter 1 that represent sin. He talks about darkness that the world is thrust into. He talks about rejecting God or, or unbelief. So John is saying that the solution to these things, which represent sin, is the one who is full of grace. This Jesus. And for everyone who receives Jesus, they are also those who receive grace upon grace. Jesus is full of this grace, so full that he offers grace overflowing to cover over lawlessness and sin. And he offers that to you this morning. Now the text also says that Jesus is full of truth, right? John uses this term constantly in his gospel. He speaks quite a lot about the truth. In verse 9, John even calls him the true light which the darkness cannot overcome. John wants us to understand that Jesus himself is the truth. That's what we call an exclusive claim. An exclusive claim would be the opposite of an inclusive claim, right? We like to be inclusive these days, don't we? Exclusivity makes us uncomfortable. Well, here, John makes an exclusive claim. Or a claim that invalidates all other claims to truth which would stand against it. He says, the word of God, Jesus Christ, the only God, he has the fullness of truth within himself. There is no other source for truth. Now, throughout John's gospel, you either see people receive this truth, or they reject it. There is no third category. John says there's only two kinds of people in this world, essentially, those who receive Christ and those who reject him. And, and we see throughout John's gospel uh, that same story play out over and over again. You'll see this as we go through it. We either see folks who receive him, which means believing in his name, or folks who reject him, those who refuse to believe in this truth and would rather substitute lies. And it's not like Jesus is hiding anything from anybody. He's constantly saying things like, truly, truly, I say to you. And in John 8, 45 through 47, he says, I tell you the truth, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. It's interesting that he says, you refuse to come to me, not you refuse to believe this truth. He says that because they're the same thing. Jesus is equating himself with truth. This makes me think of a story. Several years ago, my family decided to do uh, one of those escape rooms. I don't know if you all have been, uh, have been in one of those. They were really popular uh, back then, and the idea is that your group is locked in a room, and in order to get out of the room, you have to solve a mystery or you have to complete a puzzle before the time runs out. Now, depending on the theme of the escape room, they might pretend to say that, you know, when the timer runs out, a bomb will explode or, or the air will, will go out of the room or something like that. Either way, it's part of the mystique of the escape room to pretend that the stakes are high. Now, when I did the escape room with my family, uh, naturally, I wanted to be the one who was solving the puzzle, figuring it out myself without any help. I wanted to be the Sherlock Holmes, the Indiana Jones. That's a normal impulse. Everybody wants to be like that. It's fun to be the one who solves the mystery and saves everyone's lives. Now, each room, they have a moderator. 
right? Uh, someone who knows all the secrets ahead of time, and they feed you clues to start on. The moderator's great. They'll, they'll, uh, <clears throat> they'll mercifully give you hints uh, if you're stuck, and they'll even tell you if what you're doing is kind of a waste of time. Not only that, the moderator uh, actually has the key to the room, and so while they're outside of the room and speaking to you kind of through a speaker, um, they're the one who can let you out if you need it. When I did an escape room for the first time, I didn't realize how important the moderator was. And so while he was giving clues to everyone else to help them through, I assumed he was trying to trick them somehow by giving them false leads. And I scoured the room to try to find my own way out. For example, I'd boost myself up to like an air vent and try to pop it open, see if I could find a clue. But the moderator would speak over the speaker and he'd just say, that's just an air vent. There's nothing in there. Stop that. <laughs> now eventually I gave up trying to outsmart the moderator and I started listening to the clues and trying to solve the mystery. Once we all started listening to the moderator and working together based off of his direction, we eventually found the key and we escaped. This is kind of like what John is doing. He's saying, look, this present world is covered in darkness and sin, but the word has come to provide light and life. Jesus is full of truth and grace, and so he's like the moderator, except the difference is that Jesus is actually in the room with us. He actually is the key himself, and he gives you all the answers. We must not be like those who distrust the moderator. Instead, we must be those who receive Jesus and believe in his name because they're, they're the ones who are able to receive grace and truth, grace upon grace, because he himself is full of grace and truth. I mentioned earlier that, that we don't really like exclusivity these days because well, we all like to have our own story, our own truth. And we act as if you know, the truth that we each believe in cannot be questioned by others. John is saying this morning, there are no personal truths. There is only Jesus who is full of grace and truth, and all other competing truth claims are simply false by definition, because they stand opposed to the one who is truth. Have you thought about what that means for your life? Beliefs have consequences, do they not? Have you considered that as a Christian, you will definitely have to disagree with people in your life? People that are not believing in the name of Jesus or believing in other things. It's uncomfortable to disagree with people, isn't it? It's hard to take a position which says, I have received grace and truth in Jesus Christ. You're pretending that something else is truth. And therefore, you are wrong. I know, it's hard. The Bible says that Jesus had many hard sayings. But this is a matter of life and death, is it not? Truly. John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that unless you believe that I am the living God, you will die in your sins. But in Jesus there is life, right? 
Life or death is the result of receiving or rejecting Christ. Are you willing to be a little uncomfortable in order to tell people that life is found in the only God, Jesus Christ? Are you willing to tell others that they're wrong, that they're trusting in lies, so that you can show them the sweetness of this glorious truth that Jesus has come in the flesh, and that you have received grace upon grace from his fullness. This is precisely why we can even do these things, because we have received grace in place of the grace that we've already been given. Jesus has shown us truth and given us an overabundance of grace so that we know we are empowered to be witnesses of this truth and grace. Just as John the Baptist was a witness, just as John the Apostle is witnessing here this morning, we too have seen his glory and we must be witnesses for the truth so that others might believe in his name and have life. As we close, let's, let's review uh, what God's word has shown us today from John 1, 14 through 18. I've said that Jesus is ranked, revealed, and received. Jesus is ranked highest in the cosmos. He's revealed as the same God who has always dwelt with his people, now come in the flesh. And he's received because he is the only one in whom we may find grace overflowing. The only one who is truth. And because this Jesus is ranked, revealed, and received as the only God full of grace and truth, we must believe in him. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that opportunities abound in our life to disbelieve in your name. That we have been too ready to lay down the magnificence of this wonderful mystery that you've revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Do not let us go our own way. Do not let us reject. Give it to us to be those who receive Christ and who are made children of God. Give it to us to witness to others, to be witnesses of what we have received. And we trust that you will do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.